please turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 19, looking at verses 1 through 14, Deuteronomy 19, verses 1 through 14. Uh, We're beginning a new section of laws in the book of Deuteronomy, which are really focused on protection of vulnerable people, issues related to uh, the sixth commandment, as I hope we'll see in a few moments. And uh, our passage today uh, deals with cities of refuge within Israel. Deuteronomy 19, verses 1 through 14. Let's hear the word of the living God. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses... You shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession, so that any manslayer can flee to them. This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally, without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore I command you, you shall set apart three cities, and if the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he has sworn to your fathers, and gives you all the land that he promised to give to your fathers, provided you are careful to keep all his, the, this commandment, which I command you today by loving the Lord your God and by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities to to these three, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities... Then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark which the men of old have set, and the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Well, what does uh, justice demand in the case of first-degree murder? And how would you be tempted to respond if it was a family member whose life was taken? There are a few impulses more powerful than the desire for revenge. And history is 
a long story of examples of what happens when desire for revenge and blood uh, shed just runs loose. It's a story of escalating violence leading to ever-increasing cycles of bloodshed. Take one famous example in our nation's own history of the Hatfield and McCoys back in the 19th century, two families that lived in Pike County, Kentucky. Now, the bloodshed began at least in 1882 when Ellison Hatfield was mortally shot in fight with the McCoys. And to get revenge, the Hatfields kidnapped and killed three McCoy brothers. And for the next several years, the bloodshed escalated and continued and continued until New Year's Day in 1888 when a group of Hatfields essentially tried to wipe out the entire McCoy clan. Uh, the authorities eventually stepped in and brought an end to the escalation of violence and, and murder, but the story, among many other stories we could mention, raises the question, what should be done when someone commits first-degree murder? What does justice require? And what about cases of accidental killing? What about accidental killers? People who, without any intention or premeditation, accidentally take the life of another human being. It, it probably happens a lot more than we realize. You know, there are 40,000 auto fatalities in the U.S. alone annually, and there are countless other fatal accidents every year. There are thousands of accidental killers around us. Probably no one. You may be one. So what's a person supposed to do after a tragedy like that? Where is such a person supposed to turn? And, and what about the family of the victim? How should they respond? Where should they look for justice? As it turns out, the Lord made very specific provisions for these kind of situations. The law safeguards the sanctity of of human life by prescribing capital punishment for first-degree murder and by providing accidental killers a place of refuge, a place of asylum. So without dismissing the deadly seriousness of what they've done or diminish, diminishing the significance of any loss of life, the law provided a refuge. God, in his great wisdom, established a merciful system of justice and social institutions that would not only punish the guilty, but protect the innocent as well. And so with that in mind, I want us to explore this passage before us in, in three parts. First, uh, the provision of cities of refuge for accidental killers. Second, the prescription of capital punishment for first-degree murder for those who commit murder intentionally. And finally, the protection of property as a means of maintaining the sanctity of human life. Okay, so provision, prescription, and protection. I wonder if you've noticed, I haven't really drawn a lot of attention to this, 
as far as I can remember. But I wonder if you've noticed in this central part of the book of Deuteronomy, where we have all of these laws running from Deuteronomy chapter 12 to Deuteronomy chapter 26, if you've noticed how they correspond to and follow the order of the Ten Commandments. It's not an exact fit, but there's certainly a loose correspondence here that's worth mentioning, right? So Deuteronomy chapters 12 and 13, which deal with idolatry and worship and the place of God's name. All of those laws elaborate on the first, second, and third commandments. And it's not exact, but there's certainly a correspondence here. And in Deuteronomy chapters 14 through 16, which deal with community celebrations and holy times, the sabbatical year of release and the annual festivals, all expound on the fourth commandment and apply the Sabbath principle to the entire calendar year. And Deuteronomy 16 through 18, which we've looked at more recently, all of the laws pertaining to leaders within Israel are, are really an expansion of the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother, to honor lawful authorities. And now we come to the next section here in Deuteronomy 19 through 21, which deals with laws focused on the protection of vulnerable people, protection of life as an extension of the sixth commandment against murder. If you've ever read, this is just an aside, if you've ever read through, uh, you know, for example, the larger catechisms, exposition of the Ten Commandments, something I, I recommend you do. In fact, this afternoon, a great, a great thing to do. Pick up a larger catechism. You can get it online if you need to. And look at its exposition of the Sixth Commandment. And, and you'll see it's quite extensive in terms of what the law forbids and what the law requires. And while you read its uh, expansion upon the Sixth Commandment, you might find yourself wondering, is all of this really in there? Because it just goes on and on about what the law forbids and what the law requires. All I want to say is one of the reasons that the catechism is so expansive and speaking about the moral law is because that is exactly what the book of Deuteronomy does. It's exactly what the book of Deuteronomy is doing. The expansive application of the commandments in the larger catechism reflect the expansive application of the moral law that we find in the Bible itself. Okay? The commandment, do not murder, is just the tip of the iceberg. And Deuteronomy 19 through 21 is taking us below the surface, as it were, of the sixth commandment to see how broad and deep the commandment really is. Uh, this is what maintaining the sanctity of life looks like in the case of accidental killing or in the case of first degree murder. See, the Lord gave his people a structure, an institution, a system of justice to restrain the powerful impulse for revenge from, from spiraling out of control. As Moses explains, take a look at verse 4. This is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life. So the loss of human life is always treated with the utmost seriousness 
in Scripture. Human life is precious because human beings are made in the image of God. Nevertheless, God makes this fundamental distinction, and we need to make sure we we understand this fundamental distinction between accidental killings, which take place unintentionally, and deliberate acts of murder committed in cold blood. This law also, I think, teaches us how important what we think and what we desire really is. When it comes to the application of God's law to our daily lives, it's not just what we do, it's what we think and what we desire. The thoughts and intentions of our hearts are really significant, right? Inner thoughts and feelings and intentions cannot be overlooked when we are seeking to uphold the weightier matters of the law, concerns for justice and mercy. This law underlines this, I think, in a profoundly striking way. Even though involuntary manslaughter and first-degree murder both result in the loss of life, they are fundamentally different, and therefore they must be treated accordingly. This is where the law of cities of refuge comes into the picture. So just notice the wisdom of God's ways where both the mercy and justice of God are evident. Both are upheld as the weightier matters of the law. So these cities of refuge provided a merciful means of protection for accidental killers. Right? The mercy here is, is, is obvious. The cities are a place for people to run and hide when someone, someone might want them dead, when someone's seeking their blood. Place of sanctuary, place of asylum, during a time of tragedy and shame and trauma and dread. Cities of refuge provide a place to go, mercifully. On the other hand, these cities of refuge provided a perfectly just and proportional means of punishment for accidental killers. I think we need to recognize there, there, is, there is a... A degree. There is a measure of punishment here. After all, how can life just go on as usual when a human life has been lost? And there's a deep-seated instinct in all of us that, that understands this. The loss of human life can never simply be shrugged off. It's, it's just too precious. So even though the, the, the crime is not intentional, there were consequences. And so accidental killers were forced into what we could call a kind of exile. And in scripture, exile is a paradigmatic form of punishment in the Bible, right? Adam and Eve, after they sinned in the garden, they they had to go. Israel was exiled out of the land. After Cain murdered Abel, he was sent away. And so these accidental killers, although they were protected mercifully, There is also, I think, a recognition of the tragedy of the loss of human life as they are forced to leave their homes and to seek refuge. But another thing we have to appreciate is the fact that this exile had an expiration date. It wasn't permanent. It didn't last forever. Deuteronomy 18 actually is building on what was earlier said 
in the book of Exodus, which speaks about how a manslayer, before the people entered into the promised land, before they settled in Canaan, how a manslayer could run to the horn of the altar and take refuge there. And then Numbers 35 builds on that to talk about cities of refuge and, and what Numbers tells us and what Moses assumes we already know as we're in Deuteronomy is that cities of refuge were not just any old cities. They were priestly towns. They were Levitical cities, places where mediators dwelt. You remember the Levites, we saw this just recently, the Levites did not receive an inheritance of land, but they were given certain cities. And the cities of refuge were located in these Levitical towns. And although accidental killers were exiled from their homes for a time, they went to these holy cities which were set apart by God. And Numbers 35 verse 28 says that the time of their exile was limited. It had an expiration date. So Numbers 35 28 says, After the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. So again, the exile wasn't permanent. It had an end date in view. And here, I think, is what is really amazing about this law for cities of refuge. Even in the punishment that was enacted, the cities of refuge ultimately point us to the redemptive purpose and substitutionary provision of God through the death of his son, who is our great high priest, according to the book of Hebrews. So look, I don't know what you've done. I don't know the deep, dark secrets of your past or your present. I I don't know what secret griefs or shame you may bear, but we do bear those things, don't we? We do bear secret griefs and and shames. There are things we wish we could take back. There are things we wish we could undo. We wish we could go back in time and change things, but, but we can't. Beloved, as we think about the application of this text to our lives, you need to understand that there is an expiration date on those things. There's an end in sight. This law for cities of refuge points us to the redemptive purpose and substitutionary provision of God in his son, the death of his son, who is our great high priest. And so we can say with the psalmist, blessed are all who take refuge in him. I don't know what you've done, but I know blessed are all who take refuge in him. It just, it, it blew my mind this week, reflecting upon, maybe it's just because I'm slow to learn things, but how big of a deal it is in the Psalms that the refuge of God's people is ultimately God himself. It's ultimately in the Lord himself. And those who found refuge in Jesus Right, the church of Jesus Christ, this shapes our identity as a congregation. It's who we are, if you think about it. A, a people, corporately, 
who are seeking and who have found refuge in the Lord. What does that make us? It makes us a bunch of refugees who are gathered into a city where we have found safety and asylum. We have come to the one who is our refuge. Again, it just blew my mind this week how prominent this theme is throughout the book of Psalms where God himself is the refuge of his people. He is where we go for sanctuary. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Psalm 16, verse 1. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, the horn of my salvation. Psalm 18, verse 2. Let me not be put to shame. I take refuge in you. We're only at Psalm 25. I could keep going on and on and on and on with examples of this. But this is basic. This is fundamental to our identity. We are a society of refugees seeking asylum in God himself. This is, if you like, biblical mosaic ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. God's people comprise a city and a certain kind of city. A city of refuge with Jesus Christ at its center. Where God himself is the security of his people. But this is also really important for how we think about the ministry of local churches like Trinity. So questions I think we should ask ourselves in light of this passage. Do we we see the church as a place of refuge and safety for people to come to? Do we see ourselves on Sunday as a people running, fleeing to the city of God to find safety under the wings of the Almighty? Do we see ourselves as a place of refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ? We should. We should. This, this, this passage, as I've reflected upon it, it, it made me think of a story about King David in, in 1 Samuel 22. I wonder if it's ever struck you how often... King David, the Lord's anointed, his Messiah, was on the run. How much the Psalms are shaped by this kind of refugee theology. He was trying to escape the murderous intentions of Saul. And in this context, we read in 1 Samuel 22, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. You know, that's a fitting description of the church. To join the church is to join with everyone who is in distress everyone who is in debt, everyone who is bitter and soul, and to gather around our King, Jesus, as our commander. That's what the church of Jesus Christ is, and that's how we're supposed to think about ourselves. Coming back to Deuteronomy 19, just notice the expansion that comes in verses 8 and 9. Just the wonder and wisdom of God's law becomes more and more clear. 
In verses 8 and 9, Moses goes on to say, If the Lord your God enlarges your territory, then you shall add these other three cities of refuge. In other words, the Lord did not want any of his people to not have access to a place of refuge, to asylum. According to verses 8 and 9, when the territory of God's people expands, so must the cities of refuge. Because you see, God wants all of his people to have access to this provision. Safety, security, assurance, and asylum ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why, why I think there are all these details about you know, measuring distances and adding towns whenever the territory expands. It's a major emphasis in this passage. Measure it right, put it in the middle, make sure it's accessible to everyone because the Lord doesn't want anyone to be too far from a city of refuge. He doesn't want the way to be too far for anyone, according to verse 6. Now, <clears throat> this probably is not the first passage you would turn to if you wanted to think about church planting. But the more and more I've reflected upon it, the more and more I'm convinced this is a place we should go <laughs> when we want to think about the necessity of church planting in the world today. Because it does have real implications for the ministry of the church today. As God's people now have expanded to the ends of the earth. If the church is a city of refuge where we come to God, our rock, our refuge, our fortress, our strong tower. If the church is God's ordained instrument for holding out the gospel of grace in Jesus, the one in whom we find safety and refuge, then the, the provision of cities of refuge teaches us, at the very least, that God wants his church to be accessible to all of his people. He wants his people to have a place to go where the means of grace are available. When we think about that, that you know, the, the, the the need is great. Even in an area like ours, we might be tempted to think our area is heavily churched, but it's not. And there are other areas of the world that are in far greater need. The need is overwhelming, but Jesus has made the wonderful promise, hasn't he, that he will build his church. In other words, he will establish places of refuge. That brings us to the prescription of capital punishment in verses 11 through 13. So again, distinguishing between accidental killing and intentional murder, Moses goes on to explain that if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. And here we discover basic principle of justice that goes all the way back to what God said to Noah after the flood. You remember what the Lord said to Noah and his family after they came out of the ark. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man 
in his own image. In other words, what we do to other people, we do to God in effigy. You open your arms to people, you, you open your arms to the image of God. You do harm to other people, you do harm to image bearers of the Lord. There really should, there really should be no debate about the fittingness, the justice of the death penalty in cases of first degree murder. When you think about it, if someone willfully takes the life of another human being and then gets to go on living their own life, there is something deeply twisted and fundamentally unjust about any society where first-degree murder goes unpunished. Of course, due process is necessary. There are, uh, you know, judgments need to be rendered patiently, not hastily. Uh, But the only appropriate penalty for someone who deliberately takes the life of another human being is the forfeiture of that person's own life. Anything less than blood for blood is a miscarriage of justice. And nothing underscores the principle of blood for blood more clearly than the cross itself. The the Gospel of Mark communicates this to us by telling us that Jesus died in the place of a convicted murderer. Why does Mark bother to tell us that? Now we know Jesus died in the place of his people, but in the historical events leading up to the cross, who, whose place did Jesus take on the cross? Who did the people cry out for? Give us him instead of Jesus. Barabbas, a convicted murderer. Jesus took the place of a murderer. Blood for blood. And thus Jesus is not only our better place of of refuge, he's also the true and better Gaal Hadam, the avenger of blood, who executes perfect justice even to the pitiless point of death on a cross. You see, he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, and there on the cross, he, he not only displayed the perfect saving love of God, but he also displayed Perfect divine justice. Right? He doesn't pull any punches on the cross. And here we see the blaze of the diverse wonder of Jesus' glory set on display at Calvary. The good news, dear friends, the good news is always better than we imagined. It's better than we could ever think. It's not only that God is merciful and gracious to forgive us of our sins. That is gloriously true. But it's also that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He absorbs the wrath. He turns away the blow. God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're used to hearing that God is gracious and merciful. But do you understand that God is also faithful and just to forgive us 
and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness because of what Jesus did in your place. He he doesn't deny himself in order to save us. He's true to himself and manifests his divine glory, his mercy and his justice. He doesn't cease to be just in saving sinners. And that's what displays the mind-blowing glory of God in Christ, that God is both gracious and just. Right? Mercy and justice kiss on Calvary. This brings us uh, to the third part of our passage, which we need to cover quickly here, the protection of property rights as a means of maintaining the sanctity of life in verse 14. And verse 14, Moses goes on to say something that, that might seem out of place. Why does he start talking about moving landmarks? You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, and the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And first question that came to my mind is, okay, what's this law doing here? Uh, if there's a loose correspondence between these laws and the Ten Commandments, and we're dealing with the sixth commandment against murder, why this law about moving landmarks in this particular place? What's the, what's the logic here? I think it's to make us stop and think about the sanctity of human life, not just in physically taking away human life, but in the way James 4 helps us to think about it. Listen to James 4 verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You see, we may not have physical blood upon our hands, but how often are we guilty of murder in this far more subtle way? In the way we relate to our material possessions and the way we relate to the material possessions of others. To, to covet our neighbor's possessions, to encroach upon their gifts and their goods, to, you know, as it were, move their landmarks, to steal their property, is precisely the kind of activity that can quickly escalate into physical violence. As the father of four children I've seen this happen pretty fast over toys, right? But in, in all seriousness, just, just think about one biblical story. Think about the story of Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings 21, right? which really serves as, a, as an example of why this law is here. The king looks at this man's land and he wants it. His passions are stirred up. His wife says to him, hey, You've got the power to get it. So he takes it. He moves the landmark. He has that man put to death. And he steals it for himself. He desires and so he murders. That's why this rule is here. But lest we fool ourselves into thinking we really aren't that bad. right? Lest we fool ourselves into thinking that we are consistently pro-life. We should ask ourselves uh, the question. Is the way that I think about and relate to the material possessions of this world life-giving? Or does it lead 
in the opposite direction. Think about that. Does what you want preserve and promote the life of your neighbor? Your desire for material goods promote your neighbor's good and well-being? Does it promote his livelihood? I think if we reflect on that question with any seriousness at length, we will quickly see how much we need Christ, not only as our refuge, not only as our blood avenger, but as our greatest treasure. How much we need to set our desire upon the Holy One of Israel because he has given himself to be our refuge, blood for blood, so that we might have him as our everlasting treasure and inheritance. You see, brothers and sisters, having, having loved you, Jesus gave himself up on the cross, blood for blood, to be your eternal refuge and your eternal inheritance. So let's set our hope and our heart upon him. Let's pray together. Our Father uh, in heaven, uh, we, we ask that you would forgive us for murder. Uh, forgive us for our sinful desires. As Peter preached to the men of Israel, we we have killed the author of life. And yet you have provided a way for our sin to be blotted out because Jesus Christ has assumed our flesh and blood and he has spilled it in our place. So forgive us of our sins and, and teach us the way of life. Teach us, Lord, that Lord, the Lord Jesus is our life. And so may we find our refuge in him, shelter under his blood, and may we find our everlasting joy, our treasure, our inheritance in him alone. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.